Well, folks, uh, this morning we're going to spend some time talking about how God provides for us uh, despite our doubt, uh, in spite of our disobedience at times. And in order to, to do that, we're just going to kind of dive right into uh, the passage that we have this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to open to Genesis chapter 26. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles scattered uh, on the tables around the room. And uh, if you are able to stand, if you would please, in honor of God's word, Genesis 26, uh, I'm going to read the uh, entirety of the, the chapter to you. Brothers and sisters, this is uh, the word of God. May it be a blessing to us. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all of these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all of these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar, and when the man of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance." And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. And so Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife. And you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esk, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna, and he moved... Uh, 
from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, "Now, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And from there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. And when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let, us, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing, to, nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Bere, the Hittite, to his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elan, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So uh, here we have Abraham's son Isaac, and at this point in Genesis, uh, Abraham is dead, Isaac is a grown man, his wife Rebekah has given him two sons, Esau and Jacob, which Pastor Ben uh, introduced to you last week, and Isaac and his family, they're, they're living in the land of Canaan. Uh, the land which was promised to his father Abraham, the land where God promised to build a great nation for Abraham's descendants. But there's a problem. There is a, a famine that is occurring in the land, a famine similar to that which Isaac's father Abraham had faced years before when God first brought him into the promised land. And now living in the midst of, of a famine is not a pleasant thing. I mean, who wants to to watch their, their family members starve to death and their friends starve to death and their community starve to death and their animals starve to death. So Isaac, he's faced with a choice. Will I uh, trust God to provide for me here in the land that God had promised to, to my father and to me and to our family? Or, or will I head uh, to somewhere where there is safety? Can I head to Egypt where there is a, a consistent abundance of of food because uh, the Nile, Nile River uh, constantly waters all of the, the land around the, the Nile Delta. And uh, years earlier, when faced with a similar famine and a similar choice, Isaac's dad, Abraham, chose the assumed safety of Egypt rather than trusting God to provide and remaining in the promised land. And it was a decision that had disastrous consequences as Abraham's wife, uh, Sarah, Sarai at the time, 
uh, was taken into Pharaoh's harem because Abraham had pretended that she was his sister and not his wife. And you would think that, that Isaac would, would learn from his father's mistake, uh, but he doesn't. And, and so he makes his way towards this town called Gerar, which is, is basically the gateway to the road that, that leads down to Egypt. And I'm wondering how many of us have repeated the sins and the disobedience of our parents. How many of us have not learned from the mistakes of those who have gone before us? How many of us, when the, the going gets tough, uh, when what God is calling us to do seems just simply too difficult, instead of, of trusting him and trusting his provision, we, we turn our backs on him and, and we go with our own plan, which appears to, to make more sense. And how many of us leave the struggles of our promised land for the perceived comfort of, of Egypt? And God warns us about what happens when, when we make those types of decisions. And uh, the Ten Commandments, specifically the second one in Exodus 20, God says this, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, what God is telling us is that our sin has the potential to affect our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids and our great-great-grandkids long after we are dead. And this typically happens in one of two ways. The first one is this, that sometimes family members are simply collateral damage of our sin. They don't do anything wrong but they get hurt nonetheless. And I've experienced this in my own family. My, my mom suffered greatly because of the alcoholism of my grandmother and my grandfather. My mom didn't do anything wrong, but her life was radically impacted because of the sinful choices of my grandparents. And that is... Uh, Especially real to me right now, I'm uh, 54 years old, I'm getting ready to turn 55, and my mom's dad died at 56 years of age because of sclerosis of the liver. And I watched the suffering that occurred in her life, in the lives of, of my two aunts, in the lives of my grandmother's uncle. It's just brutal how people pay the consequences of their parents' sin. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Many of you are a, a, a victim of, of your, your dad's adultery or your mom's drug use. You've been wounded by the, the pornography use of your mom or, or your dad's abandonment. You didn't do anything wrong at all, yet you suffer 
nonetheless. But sometimes kids aren't the collateral damage of mom and dad's sin. Sometimes kids just choose to repeat the same sin as their parents. Dad was a thief, so the kid becomes a thief. Mom sells drugs, so I sell drugs. Mom's promiscuous, so I'm promiscuous. And this is exactly the case with Isaac. When, when dwelling in the land that God had promised him, uh, when that became too difficult because of the famine, his dad headed to the perceived safety of the worldliness of Egypt. And when his son Isaac is faced with the exact same circumstances, he does the same thing. And during that first famine, Abraham doubted God's provision, and now Isaac doubts God's provision. But watch what happens here in Isaac's case. Look at verses 2 through 5. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to you, your offspring, all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. You see, this, brothers and sisters, is the grace of God at work on multiple fronts. Let me show you first. God stops Isaac in his tracks from doing something extremely foolish, something that has the potential to wreck his family. You see, basically, Isaac is at the turnpike toll gate getting ready to enter the toll road that heads down to Egypt where there'll be no turning back. And before he can go through the gates, God shows up and stops him. And folks, we know how that works. Because we have a turnpike here in central Pennsylvania. And uh, you know what it's like when you come up to that toll gate at, at, at Harrisburg East as you're coming down 283. And, and you come to that toll gate at the Pennsylvania turnpike. And, and your game plan is you're going to head to the west shore. So you got to go towards Pittsburgh. And you go through that gate. And instead of making a right you go straight. And you find yourself what? Heading east to Philadelphia. Who has not done that? I mean, lots of us have done that. And you're like, no! I can't get off of this road! You drive 20 miles down to the Lancaster Ephrata exit. You got to swing around you think for a second that you're going to go to the Renaissance Fair for a few fun times, some big chicken legs or turkey legs, and then you got to get back and drive another 20 miles before you can head ultimately to the West Shore. Who wouldn't have loved for someone to have been at that toll gate saying, don't go that way, stop? That's what God did for Isaac, he stopped him in his tracks from going to a place he should not have gone. But in his grace, God did something even greater. God reaffirms 
his plan for Isaac's life. He says, Isaac, I know you you were thinking about running from my plan, but I want you to know that you're mine. And I have a plan for you. And I have a purpose for you. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to use you to bless others. Isn't that amazing? Just when Isaac's about to blow it, The gracious God of the universe steps in, keeps him from messing up, and reminds him of God's great plan for his life. And that is what God does for us. When we're deep up to our necks in sin, when when we're running from God, doing our own thing, making decisions based on worldly standards, not trusting that he will provide Suddenly, God shows up out of nowhere. He intervenes. He stops us in our tracks, but he doesn't just stop us. He reminds us that we have value and worth and that he loves us and he cares about us and and, and he desires for us to, to be with him. But you know, we're a fickle, forgetful people and it doesn't take us long to begin to doubt God again. But this time, rather than doubting God's provision, we begin to doubt God's protection. And that's what Isaac does. Look at the next couple verses. So Isaac settled in Gerar. And when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. So what happens here is Isaac takes up temporary refuge in Gerar, something that would have never, ever happened if there wasn't the famine. And Gerar is, it's an unfamiliar place. And, and so Isaac, he, he attempts to, to fit in with the rest of the folks. And at some point, the men of Gerar ask Isaac about Rebekah. And we don't know why they asked. We have no idea. The Bible's completely silent about that. But Isaac clearly saw it as a threat, so he lies. And in the process, he throws his wife, Rebekah, under the bus. He thinks to himself, you know, my wife, she's smoking. And man, if they know that she's my wife, they're going to want to be with her. So they're going to, and in order to get to her, they're going to kill me. So he, he ultimately lies, which, which makes her what? Fair game for any man in Gerar. And that's the same thing that, that his dad did with his wife, Sarah in Egypt. Abraham passed her off as, as his wife. Uh, sister, and she ends up, what, getting swallowed up into Pharaoh's harem. Now, all of this is amazing to me because God has just met with Isaac. He's just told him his plan for his life and how he's going to use him. And yet, somehow, Isaac doubts that God will protect him and his wife from the men of Gerar. It's almost unimaginable that Isaac would think that that lying would provide him more protection than the God of the universe. But again, isn't that how it works in, in our lives? Guys, I know it's how it works in my life. God affirms his love for us. He affirms his plan for us. He affirms his commitment to us. And man, right after that, 
something doesn't just seem right or something's going to go wrong. We end up doubting him. God does amazing things in our lives. And we still say, God, I don't believe that you can keep me safe in this situation. God, I I don't believe that you're going to work in the life of my struggling child. God, I don't think that you can save this marriage. God, I don't think that you can guide me out of debt. I don't believe you can take away this pain or this betrayal or this loss. God, I don't believe this. I don't believe that. I don't believe the other thing. And we end up taking things into our own hands. And we end up with disaster. That's pretty much what happened to Isaac. He lies about Rebecca, passes her off as his sister, an attempt to hold it, save his own hide. And at the same time, he puts her in crazy jeopardy. Folks, the guy is a bum. He's not a man. He's a boy in like a 45-year-old man's body. If Isaac was a man... He would have led his family courageously. He would have accepted responsibility. He would have rejected being passive. He would have served sacrificially. He would have expected a a greater reward that only God could give. But that's not Isaac. No, Isaac instead, he's cowardly and passive and irresponsible and self-centered. And he puts his wife in danger because he won't trust in the God who's just appeared to him. And you know, when you think about this, this is, this is really surprising, especially given the fact that Isaac had a front seat to God's provision when he was a teenager. The dude is laying on an altar His dad is about to drive a a stake through his chest to sacrifice him to the Lord, and God provides a ram in a thicket. You think that 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 would kind of been uh, an operative moment in his life. That would have been a memory that he wouldn't quickly forget of how that God provides for him. Now, at this point, folks, things get really crazy. Look at verse 8. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your Because I thought, lest I die because of her. You know, he's like Eeyore, right? And Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? And so Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall be surely put to death. Now, what's interesting about all of this uh, is the the Hebrew word that has been translated laughing uh, in the ESV translation in verse 8 is a really kind way of saying that that Isaac is getting intimate with his wife. I think the NIV actually translates it caressing, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, now that's completely appropriate because she's his wife. Except the problem is he's doing it in public. I mean, this is like a public display of affection right in the Bible here, all right? And Abimelech sees it. Now, now this freaks the king out. 
And so the, the king comes out to Isaac and, and confronts him with his lie about Rebekah being his sister, declares that anyone who touches Isaac or Rebekah is going to, to die. And isn't this tragic? I mean, the pagan king actually is more godly than Isaac, the man through whom God is going to create a great nation. Now, this is twice that Isaac has blown it, and he has blown it big. In the beginning, he doubted God's provision. Now he's doubted God's protection. And at this point, you'd think that God would be done. I mean, if this was me, I, I would probably be done right now. I would probably be like, you know, guy, this is ridiculous. I've given you multiple times to, to, to make these changes, and you still keep doing the same thing over and over again. And you got to wonder how many times you have to blow it before God takes away his blessing. Folks, it's obviously more than two. Because look at what happens. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. Despite his repetitive sin, God prospers Isaac, so much so that he becomes a threat to Abimelech, and Abimelech says, get out of Dodge. I mean, clearly, Isaac is not an uh, example of, of great moral integrity. He's not somebody whose footsteps that, that we probably should follow in. But what's amazing is for as much as this tells us about Isaac, Folks, this tells us so much more about God. You see, for those who God calls to himself, he's gracious despite our sin. Look at the words of Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we're dust. Brothers and sisters, that's the God that we're dealing with. When we are in relationship with him, when we are his children, 
He is gracious and kind to us in spite of our sin. It doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. But what it does mean is that his love does not go away. And you know, that's hard for us at times. Because we're human. And our love at times is conditional. We'll have a family member that blows it time and time and time again. And it's easy to write them off. But that's not what God does with his family members. God is patient and kind. As far as the east is from the west, and that's a pretty far place. That's how far he removes his transgressions from us. That, brothers and sisters, is called grace, and that grace culminates in a beautiful passage in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. While we are going through our lives spitting in the face of Jesus, using his name as a curse word, reviling his people, wanting nothing to do with him. Jesus dies and pays the price for all of that sin. An infinite God, the infinite God, dying an infinite death, paying for an infinite number of sins. That is the level of the love of God for his children. And what's amazing to me is this, that, that we can be outside of God's will and he still blesses us. What's up with that? How loving must he be? That's who we're dealing with here. However, this does not mean, folks, that our lives are going to be problem-free. It doesn't mean that God's just going to wipe all the problems away. Even though Abimelech demanded that Isaac leave Gerar, you need to understand something. Isaac didn't go very far. It tells us that, that, that he, he goes to the valley of Gerar. Folks, it's basically the suburbs. All right, it, it, it's like, you know, you're in Harrisburg, and uh, Mayor Paffenfu says you got to leave, and you move to Pakistan, 30th Street. You know, you didn't even get over the creek. That's what happens here. Isaac doesn't want to go too far. Why? Because there's a famine going on, and he doesn't want to deal with it. It's perceived safety in Gerar. 
And what Isaac really needed to do, he really needed to return to Canaan, but he's not ready for that. He's not ready to move back to the very place that God has called him to because it's a dangerous place. And you see, not only does God, Isaac doubt God's provision and doubt God's protection, but he doubts the very place that God has called him to. And at this point, his wealth has grown immensely. He has huge flocks that require significant resources, especially water. And, and so in verses 18 to 22, which I'm not going to read for sake of time, we, we see Isaac redigging the wells to feed his flocks that the local people had filled in. And there's this animosity that's going on. And he's constantly dealing with, with quarreling and animosity from the locals. And some of you know what that's like. You're around people that you just simply can't please. And it's a horrible place to be. And that's what's happening to him. He's dealing with all this quarreling and animosity, and it happens over and over and over again. And God is at work. Why? Because what happens is Isaac keeps moving closer and closer and closer to going to where he's supposed to be. You see, everything in Isaac is keeping him away from the promised land because he can't see how that could be where God wants him to be. Yet that's exactly where God wants him to be. And God is using circumstances to move him to where he needs to go. And God sees full well that well after well after well has to be quarreled over to move Isaac to where he needs to be. And brothers and sisters, that's what God does with us. He keeps closing wells, we call them doors, until he gets us to move in the direction that he desires for us to go. But the question becomes this, why would he do that? Why would God put up with all of Isaac's disobedience? Better yet, why would God put up with all of our disobedience? Why would God simply not crush us? Why is he so patient? I believe we see the reason in the next few verses, 23 to 25. And from there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pinched his tent. I said that last night, pinched his tent, pitched his tent. And their Isaac's servants dug a well. Why does God put up with all of this stuff? Why? I believe he does it because he wants to bring us to the place that he desires for us. You see, Isaac never was supposed to leave Beersheba. It's the heart of the promised land. And it, it's, that's where God desired Isaac to be. Isaac leaves because of the famine. He doesn't think God will provide. He figured Egypt's a better place. That The grass was literally greener on the other side of the fence. That's us. Sometimes being in the center of God's will is the hardest place in the world to be. And we look around, and pretty much everything else seems appealing. Every other church seems appealing. Every other spouse seems appealing. Every other family seems appealing. Every other job seems appealing. Every other circumstance seems to be 
appealing. But when we begin to journey outside of God's will, we eventually discover, sometimes very quickly, sometimes after a ton of heartache, folks, that things aren't nearly as good as they first appeared. And as we wander around, we begin to doubt God's provision and his protection and his place. And it's terrible to be there. But in the midst of our wandering, there are times that he appears and he reminds us that he has a plan. And that plan is for our good, but more importantly, for his glory. God lets it all happen giving us the opportunity to learn from our sins and from our failure, knowing all along that he's eventually going to bring us home. And when Isaac returns to Beersheba, God reappears and reaffirms his call upon his life. And in response to that, what does Isaac do? We're told that he builds an altar there and he calls upon the name of the Lord. You see, not only does God want to bring us home, but God wants us to bring, be brought home. Why? To worship him. And that's the reason, I believe, that why God allows us to wander in disobedience so that when we return back to him, that we might respond to him in overwhelming worship. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, young kids are asked, what is the chief end of man? To which they answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, God desires our worship. He desires for us to delight in him because that's exactly what we have been created to do. And there is nothing like leaving the safety of God's will to wander in the dangers of the world and then to return to God that will drive a heart of worship. Nothing. Remember the, the time in Luke 7 that, that Jesus is at the Pharisee Simon's house? And, and, and Simon has a meal for them, and, and they're in there, they're reclining at the table, and, and in comes this, this sinful woman. She's probably a prostitute. And, and she comes with a, with a, a vase, a jar, a, what, whatever, with, with, with perfume. It's the perfume that she would use to attract her clients. And, and there... In front of the Pharisee, at Jesus' feet, she falls on the ground. She, she opens the vial. She pours the perfume all over Jesus' feet. The scent of a prostitute is wafing through this dinner party. And she's weeping. And the Bible tells us what? That the tears are, are flowing upon Jesus' feet. And she's let down her hair, which is something that women don't do in that culture. And she wipes Jesus' feet. And Simon the Pharisee, he is incensed. How dare someone do this? But he's a lot more upset with Jesus than he is with a woman. And you know, what we're told is that, that he thinks in his mind that if this man were truly a prophet, he would know who's doing this, and he would send her away. The only thing he failed to recognize was Jesus was far more than a prophet. 
He was God. And God's got this really annoying characteristic called being uh, omniscient, that he knows everything. And so Jesus basically tells a story to the Pharisee. He says, you know, hey, there, there, there's these two guys. Uh, they owe a lot of money. The one guy owes 2500 bucks. Uh, the other guy owes $25,000 to the banker. And, and they can't pay their debts. And, and, and the banker forgives both the debts. And Jesus says, who will love him more? Pharisee doesn't have to be a rocket scientist to figure it out. He says, well, I suppose the one who owed the greater amount, the $25,000. And Jesus says this. Those who have been forgiven little, love little. But those who have been forgiven much, love much. And brothers and sisters, when we wander out in the mess and God draws us back to himself, that gives us a great heart of worship because we know where we've been and we know what we've done and we know how incredibly desperate we were for forgiveness. And the glorious God of the universe would engage us and allow us to worship in that way shows us how incredibly beautiful he is. But I believe there's one final reason why God allows his children to wonder in this way. It's found in verses 26 to 31. And when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Hahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said there will be a sworn pact between us because you and us are between you and us. And let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. Why would God let us go and, and, and shipwreck our lives and, and inflict all of this pain on ourselves and others only to draw us back to himself? I'll tell you why. Because in the midst of our disobedience, we end up running into relationship with all kinds of very interesting people is exactly what happens. People who are far from God, people who are blind of their sin, people who aren't just blind of their sin, people who revel in their sin, people who haven't been exposed to the gospel. And these people, despite what society would say, these people have great value and worth because they too are created in the image of God but they simply don't know who it is. And when we stop drifting and when we stop looking for, for things in the world to provide only the things that God can provide, and when we return to Jesus, those folks take notice.
they say to themselves, this is who they were. This is who they are now. Something has radically changed. And I want to understand what it is. And through our disobedience at times, and I'm not advocating that you be disobedient, but through our disobedience, God draws people to himself. And many of us are here because of that. Many of us are here because someone wandered away from Jesus, got into the pit with us. God drew them back to himself. And in the process, God drew us back to himself too. And that's a beautiful thing. So take heart, my friends. God never wastes our disobedience in a way that only God can do. He takes it and he redeems it for our good and for his glory. Let me pray. Precious Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, who can know your mind? You are so beyond us. Lord, your, your power, your purity, your goodness, your love, your grace, your compassion, it's, it's more than we can possibly fathom. And so, Lord, we come here this morning, and we just simply want to say thank you. Thank you that you are completely holy. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you made a way for us in the midst of our unholiness that, that we could be with you. Thank you that, that, that you incarnated yourself in the, in the man God, Jesus Christ. Thank you that, that he lived the, uh, the life that we could never, ever live perfectly fulfilling all of your, your laws. And thank you, Heavenly Father, that he willingly, uh, for the joy set before him, endured the cross for our sake so that, Lord, our sin could be taken away and so that his righteousness might be imputed upon us so that when you look down from your holy heaven and look at us, you see not our filthy rags, but the blood-sloped garments of your Son. Thank you for the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you would do the work that only you could do. Draw people to yourself. Open their eyes. Remove the scales. Heal their sins. Bind up their wounds. Enable them to do only that which your Spirit would permit them to do which is to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead so that they too might be saved. Do that work, God. Do it in this place. Do it in our families. Do it in our workplaces and our neighborhoods, in our schools. Do it in our government. God, draw people to yourself. Bring your children home for their good but more importantly, for your glory. And all God's people said, amen.